He's going to rule the world. And no wonder Paul penned the amazing words we've all quoted, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven, on earth, and I like this one, under the earth. Can you imagine the devil bowing his knee? I said, church, can you imagine the devil bowing his knee? But he's going to. Because it said under the earth, every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Every tongue. That means Satan's going to have to admit it. The demon spirits that have given you so much trouble are going to have to admit it. Hitler's going to admit it. Admit it. Mussolini's going to admit it. Every dictator, every evil person that has ever walked the planet is going to have to utter the words, he is Lord. And it's going to happen at the end of time. So that's one of the mysterions, the mysteries that Paul's talking about. It's the one he talks about in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, as we pick up again tonight in verse 11, Paul wants us to understand that we were predestined for praise. And boy, I'm praying, just like we sang, that God will open the eyes of our heart. Because I want you to know you were made for a purpose. And you know what the highest purpose is? Praise. Let me show it to you. It says in 11 and 12 of chapter 1, in whom we were also what? Shout it with me. Chosen, having, be, having been predestined according to the plan of him. Look at this. Who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for what? The praise of his glory. Why are you here? For the praise of his glory. Why has he let you live? For the praise of his glory. Why are you here tonight? For the praise of his glory. Why did he save you? For the praise of his glory. Okay? You were destined to praise. Now, keep in mind these, these key words that are in Ephesians 1. Predestined, plan, purpose, and will. Now, I want you to notice the purpose of the predestination that all of us are a part of, that we might be for the praise of his glory. When did God decide that you and I were going to be to the praise of the glory of Christ? Before he created the worlds. Now, can you wrap your mind around that one? Before he said, let there be light, let there be birds. Before he, as the poet said, spat out the oceans. Before he flung the stars into space. He had already decided that you and I would be in Christ and to the praise of his glory. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Open the eyes of our heart. That's powerful. So our purpose is praise. Now, in case you're wondering or have ever wondered, praise is a Greek noun. And here's what it means. The act of expressing admiration or approval. Don't you love church admiring and approving of the Lord Jesus Christ in the place of praise? That's what we did tonight. We admired him. We approved of him. We lifted him up. And you know what? You, you are never more in the element for which God created you than when you are praising him. That's why people who don't praise God really are not much alive. God didn't birth his frozen chosen. God gave birth to praisers and worshipers. Didn't Jesus say the Father seeks such, those who will worship him in spirit 
And in truth, the Father is actually on the hunt for that. He is looking for that. He is seeking for that. And when you lift your hands and you worship God and you do it with abandon, you are doing that which you were predestined to do. Wow. That's powerful stuff. You can't read Ephesians without your mind wrapping into the shape of a pretzel because it's so profound. I can't imagine God sitting back there in time before he created anything and saying, I see Jeff in Christ and I'm predestining him to be a praiser. And he's going to bring glory to my name. And that means you too. Wow. So have you ever wondered why you're here? Why you were spared in some dangerous accident? How many of you know for a fact, if God hadn't been with you, you would have been killed in some accident? I know I would have. I was in a terrible accident once, and it it barely did anything to me. I was thrown from the car. I woke up in the middle of a field. I came to in the middle of a field and walked home. So I say, well, Jeff, why are you still living? I might have been an invalid. I could have been killed, should have been killed. This car I was in rolled over several times. It rolled over a barbed wire fence. It threw me from the car. And yet I live. Why? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever stopped to consider that it's because he's destined you to live for his praise? That he's got a plan for you? I'm not telling you to go out and tempt God and drive fast and see what happens. I'm just saying, most of the hands in here went up. Let's see it again. How many of you know you were spared? Look at that. Most everybody in here. Well, what did he spare you for? The praise of his glory. Can we say it together? The praise of his glory the praise of his glory. When people look at you, Jesus intends that they would see God. In the same way, said Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So look at how the Lord intended for us to be sort of mirror reflectors of God. The people would look at what we're involved in doing, how we're living for the praise of his glory, and it would cause them to look up and praise God. That's what it means to be to, to the praise of his glory. God has placed you as a light. God has made you a mirror to reflect his glory and help see, uh, people see a glimmer of his greatness living in human flesh. Uh, I hope that somebody looks at your life and says, how did that happen to them? I knew them before. What has happened to them? And, and they finally look up and say, he had to have done it because I know they didn't do that and other people didn't do that. They didn't bring this change. This was not a New Year's resolution. This is not the result of some rehab. They are transformed and they look up and that's God's plan. Now, you've got an important purpose on this earth, no matter how unimportant you may feel. You've been placed here literally to bring praise to God. But it gets even better. He next informs us that we've been sealed by his Holy Spirit. Can you say the word sealed with me? Sealed, sealed. sealed. You've been sealed. Verses 13 to 14, you also, he says, were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit 
guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You know, I got to think about this today when I was finishing this message up. Isn't it interesting that both God and Satan want to mark human beings? Satan wants to mark you with the mark of the beast. And many are going to be marked with that mark, 666, whatever that means. But that's the mark of the beast. And that day is certainly sooner than later. But God doesn't want to mark you with some mark of a beast. God wants to mark you with the Holy Spirit. And if you're a child of God, he has already marked you. You're marked. So because you're marked with the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be marked with the mark of the beast. Now, God marks his own people with a seal. He called it the seal of the Spirit. Now, the phrase marked with a seal or sealed is from a Greek verb meaning to mark with a seal as a means of identification. God marks you as a means of identification. Uh, This is why Paul wrote in Romans. He said, if anybody didn't have the Spirit of Christ in him, if the Spirit of Christ isn't dwelling in you, you don't belong to him. Because anybody that truly belongs to him has the seal, has the mark. And the mark is the precious Holy Spirit. And I don't know how anybody makes it in this world. I don't without the precious Holy Spirit. What a hellacious existence it would be to not have that peace that passes understanding. The mark, the seal of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is a mark of identification. Many of us have experienced, I did this as a teenager, I remember it was a fad, where you, you, got a, you sealed a letter with candle wax and some identifying insignia. Usually you had some kind of a ring. Let's just say the ring has a cross on it. And you would pour the the wax on that envelope seal and then push down on it and seal it with your insignia. That's the picture here. When you pour the wax over that envelope flap and press down on it with that ring, with that mark, with that seal, it is sealed until the recipient of the letter opens it. Now, it's the same idea here. The Christian is signed for by the blood of the Lamb. How many of you are glad you're signed for? Okay? Not with ink, but the blood of the Lamb. And sealed by the Holy Spirit and delivered to the Lord Jesus, who alone will one day open it as he he receives us to himself. And what a great day that will be. And as far as God is concerned, you're already delivered, for you are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus right now as far as God is concerned. So you are signed by his blood, sealed by his spirit, and delivered into the hands of Jesus who alone will receive you to himself. That's the idea. And once the Holy Spirit is in you, he's in you to stay. Amen? We see the same exact word again later on in Ephesians when he says something you all recognize. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed until when? The day of redemption. Oh, and it gets better, folks. So so Paul has a twofold analogy here for the Holy Spirit. It is a seal and it's also a deposit. And that's what what I want you to think about for a moment. It's a seal. It marks us with an identifying mark, but it's also a deposit, what we would call a down payment. In 
uh, a part of a purchase price paid in advance. Now I want you to think about the richest time you've ever had with God. The richest time, the, the time when he touched you the strongest, when the Holy Spirit was so thick over you that you could have cut it with a knife. Just the presence of God was almost tangible. Do you know what God calls that? Just a down payment on what's coming. A deposit on what is coming. An earnest of what we're going to receive in full on that great day, and I can't even imagine. Another word for uh, sealed would be first installment or pledge. When a deposit is made on something, it gives the purchaser a legal claim to the article in question. So when God gives us the Holy Spirit, he has a legal claim on you and me. We're purchased with a price. We're no longer our own. We are his. Now I want you to say with me tonight, I really am his and I'm not mine. That's why sometimes we say it's not about me. It's all about him. Because if you're a child of God, he owns you and he's put the down payment on you. And the down payment lives inside of you. The down payment of the precious Holy Spirit of God. So we are bought with a price. The down payment is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, doesn't he, brings a little bit of heaven into our lives here on earth. I mean, I, I have a time with God every morning. And I'm going to tell you, every morning I sense a little bit of a, bit of a down payment on what I know is coming one day in all of its fullness. I feel his presence. I, I don't get up and, and go and face the day till his peace is covering me like a blanket. I spend time with God every morning. I get into the Bible before I have breakfast. I eat spiritual food, spiritual manna before I eat my Wheaties or whatever. Because I want to get with God first. I, I want to get with God before any television is on or before any phone is ringing or before anything is distracting me and hitting me with worldly problems. I want to get with God. And when I do, I'm sensing that deposit, that down payment. In the Holy Spirit, the incredible power of the kingdom of God can and does work in and through us. Through the Holy Spirit, God can speak to us and we to God. Does he speak to you? Of course he does. There we go. The Ephesian church was clearly very aware of who the Holy Spirit was. Uh, Paul is essentially telling them, and by implication he's telling us, the Holy Spirit that now gives you a glimpse of God in this life, a wonderful experience of his love and presence, is only a foretaste of the glory that's coming. It goes so far in the word to say this, that we will be swallowed up in life, swallowed up by life. Oh, grave, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, next, Paul prays for supernatural revelation to come to the church concerning these very things that we're talking about right now that we have the Holy Spirit. He's a down payment. He's a deposit. By the Holy Spirit, God speaks to us, leads us, guides us, gives us peace, strengthens us. So look at what he prays in 15 through 17. And here's what we were singing tonight. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. 
I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, Paul is praying that God would give the church wisdom to see clearly and really understand who Christ is and all that he has done for you, which is what Ephesians is absolutely designed to do. Open our eyes so that we can understand what God has done for us. So Paul expands on that when he prays this way specifically. Verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart... As a matter of fact, let's read this out loud together. Because this, if you pray this for the Ephesian church, do you think that it applies to us too? Oh, yeah. So let's just, put, let's just pretend that he wrote this letter to us because he really did. And this is the great apostles' prayer, which means it was also the Lord's prayer for the church. Let's read it out loud. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Do you know the verses 1 through 14 are one sentence in the original Greek? There's no commas in Greek, and there wasn't any verses either. It was just one long sentence. 14 verses. He's so caught up in Revelation, he just started writing. It's one of the longest sentences in literary history. And you can just feel Paul moved on by the Holy Spirit here. So look what he says. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I want you to pretend something. Pretend that your heart has eyes. Picture your heart. Now your heart has eyes. They aren't fully closed because you're saved. You do see to a point. But you know what they are? They're squinted. More Christians than not have squinted eyes when it comes to the revelation revealed in letters like the Ephesians. Most Christians don't understand what Paul is trying to teach us in Ephesians. You know why? Because they haven't spent enough time in the Word of God to really get it. So they do have kind of squinted eyes. But guess what? Paul says, I'm praying the eyes of your heart may be opened wide so you can clearly see three things. Here they are. One, I pray that your eyes are full open to the vibrant hope in the things that are coming for the believer. You know the Bible word for hope means the looking forward to something with great reason to be confident, respecting its fulfillment, hope, and expectation. Hope means a confident expectation that something good is coming down the road towards me. Bible hope is based on Bible promises. It's not wishy-washy hope, gee, I wish, gee, I kind of hope, I kind of have this wishy-washy desire that this or that will happen. No, 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 no. Bible hope is grounded on the immutable promises of God. And he says, I want you to be filled with hope when you wake up in the morning that everything God has promised concerning you and your future is yours without a doubt and good things are coming because we belong to Jesus Christ. He wants you to wake up full of hope 
not full of fear, full of hope, not full of doubt, full of hope, not hopeless. He wants us to wake up and say, good morning, Lord, instead of good Lord, it's morning. He wants us to have hope. And do you know what the Bible says? When you have Bible hope, you never end up ashamed. Hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who has given unto us the earnest, the the deposit, the down payment so that when you hope in the promises of God, you never walk away going, man, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't wasted my time with that. Or I'm ashamed that I ever believed that. No, 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 no. When it's Bible hope, it is always fulfilled by the God of hope. Amen. So say with me, I'm hopeful. It also means eager watchfulness. I know I talk about my dog a lot. But my little dog, Max, my little Yorkie buddy, he's my running buddy. I take him with me most everywhere I go. But I tell you what, you talk about a picture of the way we're supposed to wait for Jesus, the way he waits for me to come home. His ears are keyed in to the sound of my car. He knows my walk. He knows the different sounds. Because I've seen when Kathy comes home, he kind of looks up. I'm sorry. (laughs) She's got her own dog that treats her like Jesus just returned as well. But I finally got one that looks at me that way. So when she comes home, well, you know, he's okay with that. But he knows me. And his eyes are peeled. He has eager watchfulness. He knows I'm coming back. He knows I'm returning. There's not a doubt in his mind that I'm going to come right through that door. Even though I left for a while, it may be a long while, he knows I'm coming back and he's got this eager watchfulness. And man, when I hit that door, he is all over me, jumping up and down. I have to pick him up so he doesn't hurt himself, licking my face, I put him down, he jumps right back up. He's got that eager watchfulness for the return of his master. Now, it's the way that we're supposed to be. We're supposed to wake up and be filled with eager watchfulness that Jesus is going to come again, that his return is soon. We're supposed to have an eager watchfulness. We know he's returning. Though he's left for a long time, we know what he said. I'm coming back again. I want you to occupy till I come. I'm going to return, and I want you to be ready and watching and waiting for me. Hey, we can't let a dog put us to shame. Amen? We're to be hopeful, not hopeless. It says that Jesus is the hope of coming glory. Now, Second, the incredible spiritual riches. He wants us to understand. Our eyes would be open, the eyes of our heart, to understand the incredible spiritual riches we've inherited as God's adopted children. An inheritance, what is it? An inheritance consists of the accumulated possessions of somebody else that they have set aside and preserved to pass on to an heir. We would all love to be the heir to a multimillionaire relative. Amen? But guess what? You are. Oh, come on, Jeff. That's not the same thing. No, it's better. 
Because if an heir left you a million dollars, two million dollars, yeah, that'd be great. You'd buy a few things, but it'd be gone one day. But the one who laid aside possessions for you and me, whose name is Jesus, has laid aside an eternal, glorious inheritance that will never end. And that's what Paul says, I want the eyes of your heart opened up. I want you to get this. With that in mind, look at how Paul calls ours a a glorious inheritance. It is an inheritance that consists of glory in his presence. And it makes us rich beyond all comparison, rich. Now, I'm going to say something, and I'm not just trying to be give you some formulaic, silly little Christian saying. I really mean this. You, as a child of God, are rich in him. You have no idea, neither do I, the fullness of what we're going to inherit because we are heirs, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, it makes me think of an acronym that somebody made out of the word grace. Here's the acronym God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's exactly what his grace has done for us. The Greek word for riches is plutos, and it means wealth, abundance, plentiful supply. Our inheritance is Jesus, and Jesus is not meager. It's abundant. It's overflowing. It is beyond counting. It's immeasurable. You couldn't count it. If you could see it, it's immeasurable. So we first have hope, then we have a rich inheritance. And third, we have the unstoppable, unequaled, unparalleled power that God has released into our life. Paul calls it the incomparably great power of God towards us. Now, these two English words, incomparably great, come from a pair of Greek words. Here they are. The first one is huperbolo, huperbolo. What what do you think we get from that word in English, huperbolo? Hyperbole. What's hyperbole? Exaggeration, over the top. What huperbolo means is to attain to a degree that extraordinarily exceeds even the furthest point on a scale to go beyond, surpass, and outdo. Hyperbole, huperbolo, beyond imagining. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. So I can see this. Give me a revelation of this, Lord. Help me to get it, not just here, but here. I mean, (laughs) the second word, exceedingly great, the word great is megathos. Well, we know where we get uh, from the word megathos, mega. Mega. Well, it was a mega concert. It was a mega crowd. He says, you've got a hyperbolo mega inheritance and power from God. The power from God is over the top. It means greatness to far exceed a standard of excellence. You see what Paul is doing? He's heaping one word upon another 
searching for the best way by the Holy Spirit to impress on us the extreme, humongous, immeasurable nature of the power of God extended to you and me. God's full horsepower is at our disposal. And it is working mightily in us who believe. Look at you. Look where you were before you were saved. What got you here? The hyperbolo, mega power of God to transform. Two examples of Jesus and his promise to send his mighty spirit into the lives of his children. One in John and one in Acts. And of course, there's so many. But look at these two. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's good for you that I go away. Unless I go away, the Counselor, capital C, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, the power of God. Then in Acts, Jesus told his disciples just before he ascended back into heaven, you shall receive power, dunamis, the Greek, dunamis, from which we get dynamite, you shall receive dynamite power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So the church promised, uh, promised Jesus would receive the Spirit of God as a counselor and as a source of mighty dynamite spiritual power. Now, he says, I'm praying the eyes of your heart are wide open to see this. The very same power that empowered Jesus, listen carefully to this, the very same power that empowered Jesus, ministry on earth, dwells in you and me. Hyperbolo, mega, megas. The very same power that called Lazarus to come out of the tomb lives in you in the person and the presence of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. And that same power that lives in you when the final trumpet is blown, that power is taking you up. In a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, the word moment there from the Greek atomos, from which we get Adam. It means it's going to happen so fast, a moment of time you can't split. In a moment of time you can't split, the dead in Christ will rise. You're not going to float up. You're going to suddenly be there. At the sound of the last trump, The power that flowed from the hands that touched blind eyes and made them see, that broke bread and fish and fed 5,000 is in you. May the eyes of your heart see it. Now, in the next few verses, Paul goes on to elaborate further on this power of the Holy Spirit. And let's look at it because I love this. Verses 19 through 23, and that's the end of the chapter. He says, that power is in accordance with, with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly 
places. Far above all rule, all authority, all power, and all dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See that long sentence? He just can't stop. Now, let's break it up a little bit first. The power residing in the church was made possible by God raising Jesus from the dead. How do we have this Holy Spirit power? It began with the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And the resurrection of Christ is the core and crux of Christianity. No resurrection, no Christianity. No resurrection, let's go home and watch I Love Lucy reruns, it's over. No resurrection. But indeed, he was resurrected, and he is risen. And God broke the power of death which held Christ and set him free forever. The first fruits of the resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection, as we'll see in the next chapter, is a foreshadowing of our own. Because he's called the first fruit. We're the fruit that's to follow. So as he was raised, so shall we be. So second, Christ Jesus has been seated at God's right hand the place of power and authority. And you know what he's doing there? He's ever living to make intercession for the saints from that glorious position. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Uh, uh, Jesus has mentioned your name today because it says he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. And if you're a saint, that's you. So aren't you glad to know that Jesus is praying for you? at the right hand of the Father, because he ever lives. That's what he's there for. He is the great high priest. He ever lives to make intercession for us. So he's praying for us, naming our name. And I think one of the great revelations of heaven is going to be, we're going to find out all the things that we ducked and dodged and missed and were saved from because he prayed for us. Third, the realm that Paul calls the heavenlies is the place from which Jesus exercises spiritual authority over every single created thing. Animal, vegetable, mineral, demon, angel, saint, sinner. Over every other name or title or position of honor in this world or the next, Jesus is Lord. Now, we see the term heavenly places. Can you say that with me, heavenly places? You know that term. Heavenly places or realms, we see it again in verse 20. We see it again in chapter 2, verse 6 of Ephesians. And we see it in Ephesians 6, verse 12, when he says, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness where? In heavenly places. So, what can we learn about it? He is pointing to the unseen spiritual realm, heavenly places, in which God himself dwells, along with the angels and a kind of an evil demonic hierarchy identified in chapter 1 of Ephesians as rule, authority, power, and dominion. In chapter 6, principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness, and rulers of the darkness. It is a demonic, wicked, satanic hierarchy. It is how... Satan has structured his government 
and his minions to do his bidding. Principalities, powers are the low end. Spiritual wickedness in heavenly places, the high end. Rulers of the darkness of this world, sort of the mid place. It's a hierarchy. And he's telling us Jesus is over all of it. He has conquered all of it. (laughs) Aren't you glad to be on the winning team? He's conquered all of it. Now, it's interesting to me that the secular world and the scientific community, always the scientific community, used to deny the existence of the spiritual realm. That's what the the Enlightenment was all about. The European Enlightenment was all about, if I can't see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, hear it, it's not real. There is nothing supernatural. And the Enlightenment thinking of the European Enlightenment still has a huge grip on Americans, on the West. But the fact is, there is a spiritual dimension. How do you know that, Jeff? Because Jesus told me so. And he's my authority. And I've experienced the power of that spiritual dimension. But then came Star Wars. And what did the, the culture learn about um, spiritual things in Star Wars? The force be with you. There was the dark force. And then there's been a string of TV shows touching on spiritual things. Angels, mediums, the psychic hotline, God forbid, necromancers and so on, which have helped our society become aware of the reality of the spirit world. No matter how far they've departed from a scriptural understanding, much of the American culture knows there's a spiritual world. The The Bible repeatedly reveals this heavenly realm to be a place of intense struggle with evil that can be overcome day by day only through God's spiritual armor and power. That is why, folks, every morning I wrap my mind, saturate my mind, cover my brain, my thoughts with the Word of God. I put on that helmet of salvation. Thank you that I'm saved. I put on that breastplate of righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for the righteousness I have in Jesus Christ. It's not my righteousness, it's yours. I gird my loins with truth. I put the truth of God deep inside of me. I put on my feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. I'm always ready to share Jesus wherever I go. And I pick up that sword of the Spirit, I mean, with determination. It's my habit. I pick up that sword of the Spirit every day by which I defeat the devil. And above all, I take that shield of faith by which I deflect all the fiery arrows of the wicked one. And having done all that, I pray. Then I go out the door, walking in a bubble of the presence of the kingdom of God. You got to do that every day, saints. You got to do that every day. And if you don't, you're going to pay for it. Because we are in a battle, not with flesh and blood, but with wicked beings that want to negate our influence and power with God. I'm going to stop here. I'm not going to be able to finish, but let's stand tonight. You've heard enough. It's hard to get through Ephesians fast. Amen? But how many of you are glad for the mighty Holy Spirit of God? 
Amen? So say with me, the eyes of my heart are open to see the hope of his calling, the rich inheritance I have in Jesus Christ, and the exceeding great power he has given to me in the Holy Spirit. Give him a hand of praise tonight. Thank you, Lord.